Also the book of First Timothy, chapter number six this evening. The past three Sunday nights, well, no, I'll take that back. Three out of the four, we have looked at uh, the pillars of gratitude, this being the month of being worthy of the Lord in our gratitude. Certainly that theme was chosen around the season of Thanksgiving. And now that that's passed, the temptation is to not focus on it anymore. But Christians ought to be thankful at more times during the year than just Thanksgiving. We have more to be thankful for than Turkey that, honestly, we're all probably tired of by now. Uh, There's so much to be thankful for, and we ought to be grateful that we of all people have been blessed beyond measure just because we know the Lord. And uh, and then we can go into the country that we live in. Certainly, uh, it's got our problems, but at the end of the day, it's not a dictatorship. No tyrant tells us what we can and cannot do. Uh, We have a voice, although sometimes it doesn't feel like it. We do in this democracy of America. Much less we have a bunch of really great men and women who have fought for the freedoms that we enjoy. And so we, of all people, ought to be grateful. So just because Thanksgiving's over doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about this anymore. So we do conclude this series this week with the third pillar of gratitude. Now, the first two, number one, was themed around the Creator We found that in Psalm 95, and that psalm says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. The Lord is God, and we don't need any other reason to thank Him for being Him. He is God. And, uh, you know, there have been scientists, renowned scientists, that at the end of their lives said, I do believe there's a God, but based upon my estimation of that God, there's no way He could be interested in you and me. And the reality is, not only is God God, but He cares about us. And we, are, we ought to be thankful and grateful. If the rest of our life is a wreck, the one thing we ought to be grateful for is we have God. And that was the first week. The second pillar of gratitude was contribution. This could also be considered cooperation within God's plan. We're to be stewards of what He has given us. Good stewards. Uh, and, and not only should we be good stewards, but if God is God and He has given us directions on how we ought to utilize everything that He's given us, the uh, asset allocation, you could call it, what do you do with what God gives you? It, well, that is cooperating within God's plan. And we looked at that in 2 Corinthians chapter number 9, verses 10 through 15. And one of the ways that God wants you to be used of Him is to inspire thanksgiving in the hearts of others. Honestly, if if you've been saved for very long and you have not yet realized reasons to be thankful, I don't know if my preaching is going to inspire you to. So what God wants for us is that once we have realized we ought to be thankful, we ought to then express that somehow. We ought to not only say we are thankful, but if we're only saying it, those words are empty. We are to put to action our gratitude and we ought to take care of the people in our life. We are to inspire others in our life to say, thank you God for the goodness you have shown to me. And so we are uh, cooperating within God's plan. We looked at the contributor and this week, If you will follow these steps to realize, number one, we are to be grateful because God is God. Number two, we are to cooperate within His plan. If you'll follow these steps, you'll find the third pillar comes very easy. Now you have to be doing the other two to get number three easily because normally it is not. It is this, contentment. 
you can find tremendous reason to be grateful when you find you need nothing else. You have everything you need if you have God. And so, 1 Timothy chapter number 6, verse number 6, the Bible says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. That doesn't sound like anything that I want in my life. Verse number 9, I don't know if I can accurately uh, exposit it to you. I don't know if I can tell you all that it means. But words like destruction and perdition and snares and temptations and hurtful lusts and foolishness. I don't think you need a Bible degree to understand that ain't where you want to be. And even the simplest of folks like me can understand. I want no part of number nine, verse number 9. And if verse number 9... If my riches or my interest in gaining riches leads to number nine, I tell you what, you can have the riches. If everything else accompanies riches, you can keep them. But the Bible says the Lord addeth riches and addeth no sorrow to it. You can be rich in God. And I believe that's not only a spiritual richness, certainly even the poorest of us can have that. But I do believe it is also material richness. If you are a rich person, congratulations. I'd like to talk to you after church, actually. Uh, but if you are a rich person, that doesn't mean you're against God. But God can add riches and add no sorrow to it. Verse number 9 is speaking of the sorrows that accompany riches gotten out of God's will. Verse number 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God. Now, verse number 11 does sound like something I want. Okay, verse number 11 is to me the goal of my life. You understand, I don't care whether you think I'm a man of God or not. It doesn't matter to me. Because I have known men of God that were good actors. And had entire groups and throngs of people fooled into believing they were something that they are not. So it doesn't matter to me if you think I'm a man of God. The only thing that matters to me in my life is that God thinks I'm a man of God. No, I want nothing to do with the riches that accompany verse number 9. But I want everything to do with the man of God portion of verse number 11. So if I'm going to be a man of God, what do I have to follow after? Flee the things that were spoken of and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Our Heavenly Father, please help us in the short time that we have tonight. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rest mightily upon me. And I pray that you would allow every person in this room to, to shut out what's going 
outside of these walls, the holidays, the uh, work tomorrow, uh, vacations and travel and relatives. May we just shut all that out and focus on in this brief time what your word is teaching us tonight. I ask, Lord, in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. You know, Christians are weird. Uh, I'm weird, actually. Uh, The Bible calls us a peculiar people. Or at least we are to be a peculiar people. And did you know in that verse it's not actually talking about being a weird people. Although plenty of Christians are weird people. Have you noticed? No, it's talking about how we are to be uniquely different than the world that we live in. Certainly I believe you could take that in the context of separation. But I don't believe that is the application. I believe when it's saying you are to be a peculiar people. I believe this. It's saying... Your world view is to be completely contrary to the world that you live in. See, people in this world, they have the mind of this world. They have the philosophies and follow after the rudiments of this world. But people of God are to have the mind of Christ. And these two minds do not think alike. They don't agree on very much at all. They are black and white, day and dark the mind of Christ and the mind of the world. Which one do you have when it comes to contentment? Today I was driving down the road and I was pondering on the sermon and I was trying to think the sermon is, uh, I planned this sermon out before the month even began and I had my passage selected. I I was trying to meditate on what I was going to preach on and on our way down to lunch today, we got behind a car on 174, and it was a SUV that was jacked up. You could tell the guy had put some money into it. It was a nice vehicle, and you could tell he took some pride in it. And on the back window, in huge letters, it said this, Forever unsatisfied. I actually took a picture of it. I asked Amy to get really close to the car and, uh, you know, I was trying to take a picture and she said, honey, I feel like somebody's going to pull a gun on us, okay? Uh, so I was unable to get a good picture of it, but this beautiful car, this guy had spent all this money on the car and right in the back window it said, forever unsatisfied. Now, I don't know what his meaning for that is. I, I did look it up just in case it was like some rap group I wasn't completely familiar with or some drug that I wasn't sure about. Uh, but actually what it is, I believe it's a car club here local and it's forever unsatisfied. You know, that got me to thinking though. A Christian who has a world view in terms of finances, in terms of what it means to be successful... A Christian will find themselves forever unsatisfied. So this morning, or this evening rather, I I was preaching too much on mornings. I got confused. This morning, I did it twice in a row. My soul. Man, that mixed me up. This evening rather, I want to take a look at three attributes that every contented Christian will show. Three attributes that every contented Christian will show. Number one... A contented Christian will show a different definition of gain. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says this. But godliness with contentment is what? What's the next two words there? Great gain. Now obviously great gain there is speaking of great wealth. 
great things that have been added to, great gain. But in the terms of the passage, we can understand great gain would not have been interpreted uh, the same way as a Christian and as a worldly person. Great gain from a Christian's perspective is godliness gotten and contentment found. That's, that's the Christian's viewpoint. Godliness gotten. What are you working for in this life? Well, a Christian ought to be striving after godliness. And when you have godliness and you get to yourself contentment, you'll find yourself having a completely different definition than the world of great gain. Some people think great gain is the next promotion. Some people think great gain is more bedrooms in the home. Some people think great gain is driving a nice vehicle or, or being the person who is in charge. But I'm here to tell you, if that is your definition of great gain, you'll find yourself forever unsatisfied. In the passage here, you'll find that two of the reasons that a Christian uh, views this term gain differently is, number one, great gain is speaking of spiritual gain and not material gain. This isn't speaking of uh, 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 getting treasures or, or getting things. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. Proverbs 16 verse 8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenue without right. Now this, this type of sermon and these type of verses are good to say amen to and they're, they're good to hear. But really I wonder how many Christians believe it. I mean, would it be okay with you if your children make less than $20,000 a year for the rest of their life? Would that be okay? Or does it matter to you what your children become? Do you want them to be hugely successful? Well, what's your definition of success? Because here the passage is saying spiritual gain is far more important than any type of material gain that could ever be gotten. Proverbs 15, verse 16, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasures and trouble therewith. And I want to be a person who values spiritual gain in my life and not material gain. But I wonder why so many Christians struggle with this. I mean, the fact is, you cannot question that the Bible teaches spiritual gain is more important than material gain in the Christian life. If you want to debate that, you're going to lose. Even to the smallest child, they understand getting money is not success in the Christian life. Getting things does not define success in the Christian life. Loving God with all of your heart and serving Him with everything that you have, that is godliness and contentment exercising great gain. That's what that is. So why do we struggle with it? Well, I came up with three reasons. Okay, quickly. Number one... One of the reasons we struggle with material gain as opposed to spiritual gain is because one is tangible and the other is not. You see, godliness is a hard thing to touch. It's a hard thing to see. It's a hard thing to know. But, but if your bank account is healthy, or if, or if you're able to actually tangibly touch some what your definition of success is, you'll find that if it makes you feel good, you'll keep doing it. I had a person tell me a long time ago, marijuana is not addictive. And I said, okay, then stop. And they said, I'm good. 
No, you got addicted to the pleasure of it. You know what a, peop- a lot of people are? They're addicted to the pleasure of feeling successful by their own definition. Yep. Whether that's somebody telling them they're good at something. You know, I know men that preach only so people come up to them and compliment them afterward. I know singers that sing songs certain ways just so people can hear the amazing range of their voice. I'm telling you right now, it does not matter to me about those things. Why do you do the things that you do? Well, one reason people value material gain over spiritual is because one is tangible. Number two, one is measurable and the other is not. How do you know if I'm godly? At the end of the day, you can't tell. Just like I can't tell whether you're godly or not. You know the only... And that's why the Bible tells us not to judge anyone. You know why? Because we will almost always be wrong. We will almost always be wrong. The people that we think are godly... You know who people thought were godly in the New Testament? They happen to be the Pharisees. You know who Jesus thought were the most ungodly people? Uh, The people that he called a generation of vipers full of dead men's bones, whited sepulchers. You know who Jesus thought were the most ungodly and everybody else thought were godly? It was the Pharisees. But, But if we want to find success, if we want to give ourselves some bar by which to measure our success, it's easy if we just make sure that our checking account is growing or our 401k is healthy or we are climbing up the uh, occupational ladder. Unfortunately, we like to say amen to verses like godliness with contentment is great gain. But at the end of the day, I wonder how many of us actually believe it and practice it. One is tangible. One is measurable. The other is commendable. You know how many people compliment others for their tremendous faith? You know how many people walk up to you and say, Man, I'm just so thankful for your godly attitude. You don't ever hear stuff like that. But boy, you put a big spender in a church, people will know who he is. I heard a story the other day of a man that had so much money in the church, he had such a high position in the church, he started barking orders to the pastor of that church. One's commendable. He said, if, 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 if you don't do what I want, preacher, I'm going to be gone. And in five years, you'll have to shut the door because I know the budget of this church. You, you get this level of pride when you start measuring yourself foolishly like this. One of the reasons that Christians struggle with material wealth as opposed to spiritual wealth is it's measurable. We can put it on a scale and say, no, 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 I am richer than you or I am uh, more important than you. But, but in terms of godliness and spirituality, you know who some of the most spiritual people in our church are? The youngest and the oldest. I know kids with more faith than I have. And I I know older ladies that have done more for the Lord than I'll ever do. But we we, we struggle to measure these things. So we we just disregard them as if they're not important. But God says that is the only thing that matters. God can give wealth. God can take wealth away. But the only resource that God is lacking is people that will wholly commit to Him. Let me say that again. The only resource that God is lacking is people that will wholly commit to Him. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills under them. He has more wealth than Donald Trump put together with the Walmart family. Did you know that number 
9, no, number 8, 9, and 11 of the richest people of the world are three of Sam Walton's children. It's pretty crazy. All right around 30 million. The sister's the richest of them all. And to the brothers I say, what are you guys doing? Anyway, the more money than Donald Trump and the three uh, Walton siblings put together. God does not starve for material wealth, but he does struggle finding people that will sell out to him. He said, and I sought for a man among them to stand in the gap, and I could not find one. He said, who will go? Who who shall I send? Who will go for us? In Isaiah chapter 6. God is looking for men and women to be righteous and to live a life that is wholly committed to Him and value spirituality far more than materialism. A Christian's definition of gain has to be completely different than those around them. We'll find that our definition should be based on spiritual and not material. We'll find that our definition must be based on eternal and not temporal. Eternal and not temporal. Verse number 7. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is, what's the next word there? Certain. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. Job put it this way. Naked came I into this world, naked I'll go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. He can do whatever he wants in my life because he is the ultimate giver of everything. So many people struggle and fight and scrap to get a little bit more and they will find they are always forever unsatisfied. The parable of the rich fool, Jesus told us that there was a man one day who had a tremendous harvest. Now, I want you to notice about this man, he was not a lazy man. He had enough integrity and enough character and enough backbone to actually plant. Did you know you have to plant to harvest? And in order for this man to have a harvest, he had to first do what? Plant. So he planted and he had a bountiful harvest. Then he sat back and he said, I don't have enough places to store my, my, uh, the, the harvest. So he decided within himself to tear down his barns that he currently had and build bigger barns. Now, are you noticing something about this guy? He's not lazy. If he's willing to tear down perfectly good barns because they're not big enough, it isn't a matter of whether he's lazy or not. He's willing to work. But then what happens when the harvest is gathered, he puts it in the barns, and he says, and I'll just enjoy the fruits of my labor. I'll sit back, be merry, eat, drink, and be merry, and enjoy the fruits of my labor. And God looks at him. Now, this isn't a a, a writer. The Bible says, and God said unto him, Thou fool, thy soul shall be required of thee this night. Then whose shall that be? Whose harvest will it become when you're not here anymore? God understands that a Christian that is seeking temporal treasures is a foolish person indeed. I heard that Elvis was buried in a Cadillac. I'm not entirely sure whether that's true or not. But if it is, you know what I say to that? It's a waste of a perfectly good Cadillac. I I promise you, you can't get to heaven in a Cadillac. Because God drives Pontiacs. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You got to understand, Christian, that...
some of the stuff that we fight for is just ridiculous. And I'm not, I'm not preaching this sermon at you. I'm preaching this sermon at me too. I spend far too much time on trivial stuff that is not eternal in value. It is temporal at best. What are we wasting our time on? This man wasn't lazy. And in fact, one might even say he was content. Well, I'm just going to sit back and, and, and enjoy. No, 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 no. Don't confuse contentment with complacency. Complacency, the difference between complacency and contentment, they're both satisfied. The one is satisfied with yourself. Complacency, the definition of it is pleased, especially with oneself or one's merits. Now, this man wasn't lazy. He just got a little complacent. And, and, and he sat back and said, you know what? I think I've done enough. I think I've become who I want to be. I think I have enough saved up. So I am going to enjoy everything I've done. A content Christian does not find uh, some level of, uh, uh, of satisfaction with their self. They find satisfaction in God. They find that they're okay as long as God's on their side. And every day is a day-to-day grind. That's contentment. Struggling and working for our God for eternal gain and not temporal. The other day I was speaking to one of our teenagers, one of our seniors. And uh, they had played volleyball, man, for years and years and years. They actually become quite good at it. Uh, I've gone to, man, I can't tell you how many of their games, summer leagues, all sorts of games. And, and they were talking to me the other day and, uh, and they were saying, you know, how they finally feel like they've arrived at some place of skill. All those years they worked and worked and worked to get where they were. And, and I looked at them and said, you know, what's sad about it is now you'll never get to play again. And coming from an athlete, someone who spent a lot of time practicing you know what my athleticism does for me now? Every time I stand up from that chair right there, my knees pop. I went and played basketball the other day. I limped around for the next week. You know what my athleticism does for me now? Absolutely nothing. You know all the knowledge that I've accumulated about basketball, about football, about golf, and about baseball? All of it is really useless when it comes to eternal gain. And yet, that's what we sell our kids, isn't it? Oh, come on, you can do it. You know, hit the ball a little bit farther. You've got to keep your elbow up. You've got you to keep your head out. You've got to put the head on the ball. You've got you to follow through. You've got to focus on the back of the rim, the front of the rim. Isn't that what we teach our kids to really value in life? And I tell you right now, it shows our foolishness. And it shows where our focus is. It is temporal and not eternal. A Christian ought to have a different definition of gain. A contented one will at least. Number two, the second attribute of a contented Christian is we will have a distinct transition of goals. A distinct transition of goals. Verse number nine, the Bible says, But they that will be rich fall into, uh, uh, fall into temptation. I'm sorry, verse number eight. I'm sorry. Verse number eight. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. So what should a Christian's goal be if, if we're to focus on eternal values, if we are to focus on spiritual values, if those are the things that are to matter, what should our goals be to get us through this world, this life? Well, number one, focus on your daily provision. 
That's what verse number 8 is saying. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. You know, God has a lot to say on the matter of your daily faith. Your daily provision. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You live in the moment. And that is so counterculture, is it not? We see commercials come on TV telling us to invest in the future, to focus on the future, to make sure that we're taken care of. I remember not long ago there was commercials that came on that had people carrying around large numbers. And those numbers were different for each person. And the numbers were up into the millions of dollars, uh, $1,400,028. And they were all carrying around these large numbers. And at the end of the commercial, they revealed to you that those numbers represented what each person must have saved up so that they can live in retirement. And you started seeing these giant numbers. And, 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 and I'll tell you right now, that's what our world values. Security. But who's providing the security? American fidelity? Who is providing the security? Now, Christian, I don't know what your number is. But I hope your faith, I hope your trust, and I hope your security is not in that number. God doesn't mind you carrying a number with you as long as you don't trust that number. Let God take care of your tomorrow. I remember a, lot, not, uh, a while back, my dad called me in. I had some money that uh, I was just kind of sitting into a checking account. He called a fella in. Somebody introduced to him, and he was going to invest some money through this man. The man's name was Michael. He came in in a tie. Uh, he didn't speak with a New York accent, but for the purpose of this illustration, you can just imagine him with one. It would be very fitting, Okay. Uh, Michael, he seemed like a nice enough guy, had real slick hair. You know, that was before like gel was really in. He had gel, you know. And Michael came in, real slick guy, had a briefcase. And dad called me and said, Andrew, this guy wants to talk to you. I know you've got some money sitting in a checking account. Maybe you want to invest that money. And see, one thing about my parents is they did teach me how to invest or at least how not to in this case, okay? And I remember this guy, Michael. Man, he set out all these folders and he had all these files and he, he had uh, numbers, man. More numbers. You could drown yourself in the amount of numbers this guy had telling you, if you give me this much in X number of years, it will be this much. And, you know, I'm looking at how much I'm giving him and I'm looking at how much he's going to be giving me. And I said, hey, that sounds pretty good. Well, so I invested with Michael. After about two years or so, we got the report back, or I, I began to pay attention, I suppose, and I, I looked at the report, and I noticed that every year Michael was getting a share of my money. And what was very odd about it, I found at least, was Michael was getting the money that I was profiting. Essentially, my money had not grown at all. Michael was taking the vast majority of that money. And isn't it funny how easily we'll trust these men in suits? Oh, they've got degrees, don't they? They've got knowledge and expertise. You know what my brother told a financial planner one time? Gene Jr. called him in and says, I want to see how much you make in a year. And that financial planner said, well, why do you need to see that? And Gene Jr. said, because if I'm making more than you, I need to be telling you how to make money. But we trust these people. 
And I'll tell you right now, it's ridiculous. The only way they know how to make money is to get suckers like you and me. And, and, and yet God stands there pleading with us, trust me for your tomorrow. But it is so countercultural, isn't it? But are we supposed to be a peculiar people or what? Aren't we supposed to not be a part of this world and not to fall for the allurements of this world? How hard would it be for us to just say, God, you take it all. I'll trust you for tomorrow. <laughs> That'd be pretty tough. But that's what God expects. We are to trust God for our daily provision. And it ought to be a goal of ours. Not only our daily provision, but also our daily purpose. Think about this with me. If a young man starts working when he's 20 years old, and uh, he's a successful young man, he grows and he, he has an education, he's promoted up the corporate ladder, let me ask you, where is that young man at the age of 75? My dad told me a long time ago, it's funny, people, people uh, work and work and work to get their wealth and then they spend it all to keep their health. How many people have you known that have given their lives to make a dollar only to have to spend every dollar they've ever had trying to stay alive another day? Trying to fight back old father time. We all end up the same way. And we look at the men under the bridge in Fort Worth as is they're lesser people, but the reality is they go out the same way we do. With nothing. So what is your purpose? Well, as a Christian, you ought to have a larger purpose than growing your wealth. What is that purpose? President John F. Kennedy was one of the youngest presidents, I believe the youngest president our country had ever had, at the time at least. January 20th, 1961, President-elect Kennedy was tasked with giving his inaugural address. In the days leading up to his inaugural address, he realized the importance of this one speech. It mattered because he had just won the presidency with just one of the slimmest margins in history. So he needed people because of the challenges that our country faced due to the Cold War and due to the nuclear crisis that was on hand. He, he needed people to gather together and kind of hand in hand work with one another. He figured that the best way to do this was with one very, very powerful speech. He tasked his, one of his main advisors, a man by the name of Ted Sorensen, to, to research what makes a great speech. In fact, Mr. Sorensen looked back through history at every single presidential inaugural address. And Mr. Kennedy actually asked him to look specifically at the Gettysburg Address given by Abraham Lincoln many, many years before. They were studying what makes a great speech. They both agreed that it should not be too long. They both agreed that the, the speech should not use large words or, or it should not uh, confuse people. It should be very succinct and to the point, but it ought to use powerful statements. Now, most of us in here remember nothing from that speech except maybe one phrase. His inaugural address, January 20th, 1961, he said, And so, my fellow Americans... 
Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And then he addressed the entire world. Said my fellow citizens of the world. Ask not what America will do for you. But what together we can do for the freedom of man. We don't remember anything else from that speech. Hours and hours of research, countless revisions and edits went into this speech. And the one thing we remember is, ask not what America can do for you, but what you can do for America. You know what our daily goal ought to be? Our daily purpose is ask not what God is able to do for me today, but ask what I can do for God today. Somebody that has no greater purpose in life but to live for themselves, I'm telling you right now, is a sad, sad individual. They are the epitome of Scrooge McDuck. Amen? And if you call in cartoon theology, Scrooge McDuck is not a good person to be. Are you Scrooge? Are you living for yourself, getting what you can get and disregarding any type of eternal or spiritual value? A contented Christian will find purpose in the daily grind of living the Christian life. A contented Christian will find blessing in the daily provision of our Heavenly Father. A life that is lived for Christ has never yet suffered lost. And a life that has been lived for self was never even found. Isn't that what Jesus said when he says, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it? Christian, what is your purpose? Teenager, it's more than just going to school. It's more than just being popular. Friend, it is so much more than living your life so that you can have something. Live for God and you'll never regret it. What is your purpose? A contented Christian will have a different definition of gain. A contented Christian will have a distinct transition of goals. And thirdly, a contented Christian will have a deliberate recognition of greed. Look in verse number 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Notice with me, first of all, this requires attention. Verse number 9 uses language like, Fall. Snare. You say, Brother Andrew, I don't really have much trouble with the sermon that you're preaching. I I find myself content in the daily uh, life. I I find myself content with everything God has provided. I, I would consider myself a content Christian. Well, you better take note in case you fall into the snare. You know what Proverbs teaches us? A snare that is visible to the foul is pointless. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 17, Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of, the bird, of any bird. You see, if you can see the trap coming, it's not a very effective trap. Right. Trappers literally spend hours and hours perfecting their traps so that animals that come to the bait are unsuspecting that anything is different than a normal feeding time. They hide the traps under uh, uh, sticks and under debris so that that animal is not aware. They go through great lengths to hide and mask their scent. In fact, if you do any research on it at all, and I know Brother John does much trapping, but, but uh, if you do any research on it at all, some people even go to the point of boiling their traps to remove any scent from it at all. You say, Brother Andrew, they go through a lot. Yeah, and I promise you this, the devil's going through a lot to get you. 
And for you to say, oh, brother, I'm a pretty content individual. Verse number nine says, you need to take heed lest you fall. In fact, isn't what the Bible says? Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed. Watch out lest you fall. So maybe this sermon doesn't apply to you at this current moment in your life, but you better be on the lookout that greed does not seep into your life. It must require our attention. Number two, if we're going to avoid greed, we must refocus our affection. Verse number 10, the Bible says, for the, what's the next word there? Love of money. Some people have misquoted this verse many times and they say, for money is the root of all evil. That's not what the verse says. Just like the truth shall not set you free. That's not what the verse says. The Bible says the truth shall make you free. We misquote this verse all the time. It is not money that is evil. It is the love of money. You know what the angel in Revelation chapter 2 said to the church at Ephesus? I know that you can't stand them that uh, are ungodly, and I know that you have certain commendable works, but he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first, what's the next word? Love. They at one time loved God more than anything, but now their affection had been refocused. What we have to do if we ever find ourselves slipping into this idea or, or this uh, 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 thought process of greed, we must refocus our affection on the thing that matters. Earlier I qu- quoted uh, President John F. Kennedy. I'm going to create, uh, now I'm going to quote another great American, Hank Williams Sr., when he said, Your cheating heart will tell on you. And what happens is Christians at one time wholly sell out for God. But throughout the course of life, their heart wanders. Isn't that what our song said tonight? Prone to wonder, leave the, uh, prone to wonder God I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our heart wanders and our affection wanes. We begin to care about things that aren't so important anymore. We begin to care more about occupations and, and what the kids are going through. And, and, and that's a good and admirable thing. But we focus on these things and prioritize them over our affection for God. Your cheating heart will tell on you. Say, Brother Andrew, I'm not greedy. Okay, okay. What does your checkbook say? You see, every checkbook tells a tale. Every bank statement, every credit card statement tells a tale. Who or what you are more committed to. For Christians that struggle with trusting God with finances, uh, for Christians that struggle with trusting God with even the simplest thing like a tithe, I'm telling you, your cheating heart is telling on you. And this isn't me saying this. The reality is, if you cannot trust God, I have a quote in the back of my Bible, something preacher said a long time ago. If you do not have enough faith to trust God with your tithe, what makes you think you have enough faith to get into heaven? That's preacher's words, not mine. You can get mad at him. Uh, But I'm, I'm asking you, what's your heart saying? Does your heart hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you esteem the words of his mouth more than your necessary food? I mean, is that the craving and longing of your heart and your life? Is that what really matters or does stuff down here matter? Does the car matter? 
Does the, 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 the club matter? What matters? If we're struggling with this, uh, we need to refocus our affection. Number three, and we, we're done, you must remember your assurance. Verse number 10, the Bible says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. Their faith at one time was where it needed to be. Their faith at one time was aligned accurately with what God's will for them was. But now it's not. Now it's erred. This is the same as Paul saying, uh, you have fallen from grace. He wasn't saying you've lost your salvation. He's saying you've, you've, you've focused on things that aren't as, as important. The, the grace that you first received of me, now you're focused on works and keeping the law. You have fallen from grace. You know what uh, Paul is saying here to Timothy? You must watch out that this greedy desire and attitude is not... Uh, take place in your heart. And, and there are some that have. Their faith used to be on God. Their faith used to trust in Him for their daily provision and their daily purpose. Their faith was right. But they've erred. And so what we must do as Christians is make sure our faith is in Christ. Our faith is in Him who matters. The Alpha and the Omega, as Hebrews puts it, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You must remember who your faith is to be in. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For He hath said, does anybody know the rest of that verse? He will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Are you telling me that the recipe for uh, getting rid of covetousness and finding contentment is as simple as realizing God is with you at all point in time? He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You know what that is? That's just saying that your faith is still in God. And as long as your faith is still in God for your daily provision, for your daily purpose, as long as your definition of the word gain remains the same as God's, Christian, I don't think you'll have any trouble in the world being content. It's when our definitions begin to depart from those of God. It's when we no longer see God as uh, uh, God's definition of eternal value as opposed to temporal value, spiritual gain as opposed to material gain. Philippians chapter 1 says, According to my earnest expectation, my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness is always so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul had his faith. His faith was certainly in Christ alone. He did not waver. He was not ashamed. He said, if I have to give my very life for the cause of Jesus Christ, I am willing to do so. Christian, where's your faith? Well, we, we know very little about having to exercise our faith. People that go to church under the threat of government employees coming into their church and taking them to jail as a result of meeting in the name of God, they have faith. And, and, and be honest with you, it's not your fault you were born into America. It's not your fault that uh, you, know, you're, you're, you have this lavish lifestyle. But what I'm saying is, we must be very aware that our 
Christianity that is so easily handed to us does not become a stumbling block for our faith. Just because you can come in here and enjoy worship and enjoy preaching, and well, you're probably not enjoying this preaching, but just because you can come to church, let us make sure that our faith is not weakened because we get Christianity on a platter. How many of you have the Bible app on your phone? Raise your hand, please. Let us make sure that that is not a stumbling block more than it is a help. How many of us have access to Christian music at all point in times in the day, whether it's a CD in your car, a radio station, or satellite radio, or internet radio? Raise your hand. Man, Christianity is literally shoved down our throat. We drive down the roads, we see advertisements for Christian churches. We see verses on people's cars. We see the fish, which I'm still not sure what that means, but we see those things. Christianity is so readily available in our culture. And it's not your fault, but what I'm saying is take heed lest the ease of Christianity ease your faith. A faith that is not exercised is a weak faith indeed. We don't have to exercise our faith very much. The only times we ever have to exercise our faith is when the doctor calls and says, you know, you're not well. Your daughter's not well. That's the only time we ever have to exercise our faith. And when we go through those things, it's as if our world is coming to an end. What is your faith? What is your faith in? A while back, we had a fellow by the name of Jace Robertson at our Hunter's Extravaganza. It was unique. I knew about Jace because I'm a hunter. I watch hunting shows. They had a show called Duck Commander on for years. In fact, when I first got into duck hunting, these guys were the royalty of the duck hunting world, okay? Uh, It's hard for me to explain to anybody that doesn't know them before, but these guys were the, I'm going to use language here, please don't be offended, the down and the dirty type of duck hunters. I mean, uh, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but when these guys were in the duck blind, I mean, there's a lot of people that duck hunt. But when these guys were in the duck blind, and I'm talking about these guys, Phil Robertson, Jace Robertson, Cy Robertson, you know, John Godwin, uh, I forget the other one's name, but, but all those guys, when they were in the duck blind, if 15 ducks came in, you know how many left? None. Okay? And I'm just here to tell you, if 15 ducks come in on me, there's a good chance all 15 are making it out. All right? They're not easy to hit. These guys were the best at it. I remember actually Brother Jim, me and Brother Brian were watching these things. Just in, in awe. Groups of 30 ducks come in. All, it just sounds like World War II for a brief moment. And two ducks fly out. It is remarkable. They're the best. Now, when Duck Dynasty occurred... You know, their image kind of got a little beautified, so to speak. But I'm telling you, these guys had no mercy before. Anything that walked, flew, or crawled probably didn't stand a chance in front of them. And I loved it, okay? Well, we were having a hunter's extravaganza, and their Christian testimony preceded them. It was evident in all their videos. They were That was definitely something they made a point to do. And so when it came time to suggest people to have for... Our hunters extravaganza, we needed a guest, at least a guest to come in that might attract some guys. And they preacher actually was able to give the gospel to, man, I don't even know how many hunters that would never come into our church any other way. This was the literally months before Duck Dynasty released. 
In fact, if you were here, you remember seeing the very first promo for episode one, the one where they create a little pond in their shipping bay. They, they actually showed the promo for that episode on these screens. We were one of the first people to ever see it before season one ever came out. Now, I'm going to share with you some privileged information. We give everybody a, a love offering that comes in to speak. You know how much we gave Jace Robertson, him and his wife, for coming in? I remember Brother Jim and Miss Mary got to go pick them up at Spinks. They flew in on a private plane. It was pretty cool. Uh, but uh, uh, you know how much we gave them? It's very privileged information. We gave them $2,500 for him and his wife to come. That's pretty good payday, I'd say. After the series released, y'all remember, I mean, they grew in popularity like, like nobody's business. I mean, they were everybody. I remember people were leaving church on Wednesday nights just to go home and watch Duck Dynasty. In fact, our family, as soon as church was over, we all went over to Mandy's and Craig's house and watched. Duck Dynasty it was great. It was funny. It was awesome. I want to show you something I found on the internet today. Uh, this is actually, and I heard this was the case. Brother John, do we have that? If Yeah, there we go. This is Jace Robertson's profile. If you'll look down there below the reality TV star, y'all see the fee range? $20,000 to $50,000. Y'all see that with me? I had heard that it was $50,000. The last uh, conference I had heard him go to was $50,000. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? That somebody would pay Jace Robertson. The guy's cool. I liked him. Nice guy. He can blow a duck call better than anybody. Well, not, that's not even true. He can blow a duck call well, okay? He can shoot ducks about as good as anybody I've ever seen. And somehow this guy has turned his popularity and fame into $50,000. And I'm not criticizing him. Get what you get and you don't throw a fit. That's what my daughter always say, okay? So that's, that's all right. But if Jace Robertson is worth to someone $50,000, how much is God worth to you? I mean, Seriously. If somebody in this crazy world in which we live in would pay him $50,000, I think Hillary Clinton last time I heard was like a, a half a million dollars to ask her to speak. If Hillary Clinton is worth half a million, how much is God worth to you? Because you know how much a bunch of Christians sell out for? 10%. Or missing Sunday service so the kid can play in a baseball tournament? I'm not, I'm not criticizing you, but I am here to, to almost wave this flag in your face and say, we need to take heed. Amen. Yeah. We, need to, we need to worry about the condition of us. Preacher preached a barn burner of a message this morning about cold churches and contented Christians. Let us make sure we understand that when preacher said contented Christians, he was not talking about uh, uh, materially content Christians. He was speaking of Christians that were content spiritually not to grow. And I'm here to tell you, preacher is dead on the money. Revelation 3 is exactly where we are. We are the church at Laodicea. I had a preacher not long ago do this, and I'll close. He pulled up, Brother John, can I ask you to come up here, sir? Brother John is going to represent somebody, okay? Brother John is going to represent the best Christian that I know, okay? Brother John, can you, can you play that part? I'll try. Okay, he's going to be acting the entire time, so don't worry about it. Um, and Brother Markham, can you come up here? Right here, please, sir. 
Brother Markham, now this is no offense to you. John just happened to be on that side. You're going to represent the worst Christian I know. You're going to have to act a lot, okay? But can you do that? Fit the bill. <laughs> he fit the bill. All right. So Brother John represents the best Christian I know, right? Everybody with me? Brother, Brother Markham represents the worst Christian I know. Where am I on this scale? Let me ask you, where are you? If Brother Markham represents the worst, the guy that you don't want to be, the guy that says he's a Christian, his Facebook says he's a Christian, but he doesn't act like one at all, in, in, ever. If, if that's Brother Markham... And Brother John is the guy who is just humble. Oh man, he's humble. Tell you what, he, he just gives and serves. He just always has a good attitude and loves the Lord. Man, he, he, he doesn't just go soul winning. He cares about the souls while he's trying to see them one to the Lord. I mean, Brother John represents the best Christian you know. Where are you at on this scale? Listen to me. Because if you're not Brother Markham and you're not Brother John... You are lukewarm. You understand? You're not cold. You're not hot. You're right in the middle. I'm ashamed to tell you, most of us find ourselves somewhere in this limbo. Some days resembling Brother Markham. Some days maybe looking more like John. Christian, we've got to get this fixed. And stop playing the charade that too many Christians are playing. We need to be countercultural. We need to stand up and recognize a life lived for Christ is the only thing that will matter at the end of the day. Thank you, gentlemen. Let us pray.